Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Early Education Show. That's episode 10, we hit double figures. Well done everyone. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. It's great to be back with you again. We're uh, excited to uh, be back in your listening devices of choice for another week. We might crack straight on into it with the news of the week and I think you're bringing us that this week. Lisa, what have you got for us? Look, what I've got for us is kind of related to our themes this week, but it's about Donald Trump. And the reason why we're talking about Donald Trump on an early education show podcast is I think if I tell you some of the tactics that his handlers used to handle him, some educators, you know, possibly the ones in the toddler's room, might in fact recognise some of the tactics. So his campaign manager, who's a woman, of course, it's a woman, it's Kellyanne Conway, says, you know, she particularly tries to manage his late-night tweeting habits. For those of you that aren't on Twitter, you may not know that Trump has a habit of tweeting the most horrible things at about 3am in the morning. Most of us kind of manage to restrain that, but he doesn't. And so what she tries to do is she tries to promote positivity positivity she says here's a couple of cool things we should tweet today it's like saying to someone uh, how about having two brownies and not six she's also tried to appeal to his business sense to get him to shift his campaign he said she need instead of saying to him that he needed to court women voters she talked to him about this is how we need to find new customers and it's all a bit little condescending but I kind of also see you know exactly you know that kind of managing of someone that hasn't yet learned how to manage their own wants and desires in the same way that educators sometimes have to manage toddlers. Uh, it's, it's about teaching self-regulation I think there Lisa. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. I think he's 70 isn't he? But it's never too late. That's all right. <laughs> I love this article so much, I've, I've, as well as being a nerd on quite a variety of other topics as well. I am a bit obsessed with the US election, and this is, it is, it's definitely worth reading. Check out the, the link, but um, God, whatever they're paying, uh, his campaign managers surely cannot be enough to have it's to manage. It's not enough. No, it cannot be enough <laughs> to manage Donald Trump. <laughs> so um, thanks for bringing us that, Lisa. So we've got two topics for you uh, this week as usual. We're going to start with a chat about the policy and politics of early childhood education in the United States, given the US presidential election finally, finally wraps up next week. For anyone who's been following it, it's felt like it's taken about five decades, but um, that will be wrapping up next week. So it's a good time to talk about just sort of how that sort of stuff works over there. And then we'll be bringing it back to home with a discussion about the push uh, recently to extend... Uh, funded preschool to three-year-olds. There's been a bit of media about that uh, going on that last little while, but let's uh, don our cowboy hats and boots and head over to the good old United States of America. And I think we probably all just want to start this chat by saying I don't think any of us can claim to be experts in this space. I think we're sort of interested observers. 
um, and we'll be having probably you know a, a relatively light touch uh, discussion on some of these issues. But I think I, I, I do want to start with, and look, this is entirely just an excuse to do what every other podcast on the planet is doing, which is having a big fat crack at Donald Trump. But <laughs> let's maybe before we get into specifically early childhood so stuff. You, Liam, can I just check what you're actually saying there, that we're actually a little bit ignorant on this topic and a bit biased? Would that be the case? Why would, why would you assume there's a bias? Just because I'm assuming we're going to bash Donald Trump. Look, there may possibly be. I wouldn't use the word ignorant, Lisa, but, that I, but I'm ruling to cop to bias but look i think every every media organization and person on the planet i think uh, has at least an opinion or probably a negative opinion on this so i thought yeah we may as well have a very quick chat just about clinton v trump and what that's sort of looking like from our perspectives here as teachers and educators and advocates in australia um i'm terrified to know who to turn to first but lisa what's your sort of thought on this I think that um, if I was a, a now a, a two-year-old or a three-year-old in America, I'd be very, very scared about the uh, idea of Donald Trump getting in. I'd be very scared about him controlling my early education. I'd be very concerned about him controlling my education. And I'd be terribly scared about him having the keys to um, uh, nuclear weapons. Yeah, a pretty succinct uh, summary, I think. It's interesting, when I told my wife we were going to talk about um, the election and the US stuff, she actually said, oh, God, so you're just going to spend the whole time talking about Trump instead of talking about Clinton, which is sort of unfortunately what has uh, sort of left the US, you know, in this state where we're looking at the first, um, hopefully, the first female president of the US, a very accomplished, uh, experienced, uh, highly, highly qualified woman. Uh, and all we can really talk about is this overgrown pumpkin. It's, uh, it's. I guess that's not so fantastic. So she did make sure that I would at least have that discussion because we'll be talking a little bit probably more about Clinton later on, given she's actually done some specific advocacy in this area. But I think it is... And she's actually pushed a real live human being out of a vagina too. Yes, that's uh, definitely wow. always a good qualification. Well, look, not many female world leaders have done that. Yeah, you know? not many world leaders have done that. Yeah. Certainly, no American leader has ever done that before. I think it's important. Very true. Very true. Very true. So I think it's so it's that to me is just a you know something that and I've um, like I said I'm a bit of a nerd for this stuff. I listen to a few a bunch of podcasts. I read pretty much everything that comes out about it. And it's been. It's been a fairly sickening display, and and for me, and I look, and I very rarely like to discuss anything to do with maleness or um, sort of men, particularly in the sector, but even just in general. But the there's a particularly just nasty fake male machismo energy about the whole thing that just really makes me really sick and angry about the whole thing and I wish he'd just shut up and go away but I think the problem is he But that's okay Liam because it's given rise to nasty women and what woman on the planet right now doesn't want to be a nasty woman it was like, remember when the, um, was it, I can't remember who said it, was it Alan Jones who came up with the, was it the fright mats? Yeah and everyone wanted to be a fright bat (laughs) They could form a little um, Australia-US sort of support group, maybe between the fright bats and the nasty women. That'd be great. <laughs> Leah, what about you? Have you sort of followed much of this at all, or are you sort of just trying to ignore it until it goes away? Oh, no, it's a bit of a – it is a, definitely a sport in our house, and we were only saying tonight that 
you know, you couldn't couldn't even conceive that Donald Trump was going to get this far when the whole it seemed like a game started out, and I think we just thought it was a huge joke that he was running. And now I, I still can't believe that it's down to this, and that it, you know, and that there's still this question around whether, um, well, it depends on which polls you look at, and of course, we all are trusting that the right polls that are predicting Clinton's win will be the right ones. But it's just been such a crazy race, and I think it shows that that there is a representation for everybody in this world. I think it really does show that. <laughs> Look, the only thing that is, you know, like likely I'm a bit of a nerd on this topic too, and um, the only thing that has ever resonated in terms of helping me understand why he's <clears throat> been able to get where he's get where he has was a small video that was done in a town in the Midwest of America where. You know, their industry, their coal mines shut down, then their supporting industries shut down. Finally, even their Walmart shut down. Now, you've got to know that, you know, a place that doesn't have a Walmart within striking distance, business, striking distance is pretty, you know, close to the edge. And it just interviewed the people there and really all that they were buying, like they didn't care about his sexism, they didn't care about his stupidity or any of that. All they were buying was the nostalgia, let's make America great again. But I don't think where that they were we... sitting, America wasn't great. America... Yeah, but I, and I don't think that we fully understand here the impact that the, that the GFC has had because we just haven't felt it here in the same way. And it has been diabolical for people in the states in terms of what it's done to their economy what it's done to their day-to-day living particularly in those areas that you're talking about Lisa and I I think it's very difficult for us to conceive of what it it really um what it really means for people and people are looking for that for that time when this sort of stuff didn't happen they are looking for that nostalgia so that's that's why he is appealing to them definitely and I think that's a sort of recurrent trend across a lot of politics um, uh, across the world, I and mean, even in Australia, which is this hearkening back to some sort of golden age that A, probably didn't exist, and if it be, it only existed for um, uh, straight white old guys. But there's, but I think because as the world becomes you know, more multicultural and more diverse, and um, you're seeing that in statistics in the US where you know, white people are going to become, uh, you know, less than 50% of the population. And I think the reaction in Australia to strands of multiculturalism is is, is similar. There is this um, this desire to go back to this, you know, nostalgia 1950s. And, and I think a lot of that sort of leads to, well, A, the election of, you know, Tony Abbott. And, but, you know, the rise of, you know, groups like One Nation, where it's, just, you know, it's, it's the, you know, I want my country back. Make America great again. People want to feel, they want to feel safe, they want to feel secure, they want to feel, um, you know, that there, there is a place for them. And I think that this is where he is appealing to people who are feeling that, that, that you know, they're feeling disempowered in this way because of all of the things that have happened in their country. And I think this is, you know, it's exactly the same with One Nation here. It's people are feeling less than secure 
those people who are feeling less than secure are linking up to to um, you know parties like One Nation. I think it's it's a very standard political process, don't you think? Yeah, I think there's examples of it everywhere, and you can only hope that it's sort of a bit of a it's a bit of a cycle, and it comes back to more sort of progressive and diverse approaches to um, to the electorate and to you know who we who we will be willing to um, suggest would um, potentially lead the country. But again, Australia, we elected Tony Abbott, which, you know, to be fair, Donald Trump does make Tony Abbott look like, well, what he is, a Rhodes Scholar. But um, he's not... He's, not <laughs> he exactly... really makes him look like a Rhodes Scholar. <laughs> <I know. laughs> which is, considering he is one, there, right? he, he never really looks or sounds like no, one. But he really makes him look like one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think we may as well, we've probably, yeah, I think we, I think we had to touch on it at some point. Well, no, we didn't i insisted that we did i think i've been saying we had to do this topic for quite a while but um what i might do now is and we'll, we'll, we'll include a more detailed link in the show notes i don't want to make this a um too much of a boring lecture but maybe just give a little bit of the potted history of um early childhood and childcare in the u.s because it's actually fairly interesting so it's sort of as with most sort of developed countries it sprung up after the uh, the second world war when uh, women uh, went to work in factories and um, basically assisted with the war effort. And in order to ensure that that happened, there had to be um, essentially entirely government-subsidised uh, childcare. So for the um, mothers uh, who had children, so they could basically access um, the ability to work. Now, uh, I think this happened... At what, sorry, what happened in a lot of countries is that sort of became the foundation for better policies. In the US, it stopped pretty quickly. So basically by 1946, the funding stopped and women were expected to just go home and uh, and basically head back to the kitchen. But uh, there was a big push in the 60s to expand um, access to uh, preschool programs particularly. And that sort of went off into the 70s. And it's interesting, in the 70s, there was a very... And there's a, the, the article is really interesting about there was this point in time where there could have been a very significant um, push for uh, almost fully government-subsidised childcare and into the 80s as well. And it was stopped, basically. It was basically a bipartisan commitment. The Democrats and the Republicans had agreed that this needed to happen, and it was vetoed at the last minute by uh, President Ronald Reagan. Um, no, no, sorry, President Richard Nixon. I get the two crazy Republican presidents mixed up. But um, Richard Nixon vetoed it in 1972 because of fears it would lead to some communist takeover of the US. So basically, he'd visited China, he'd seen the their approach to sort of government-mandated early childhood and was worried that America would be raising a bunch of Stalinist, lefty communists. So it's on that amazing alone, how much you can indoctrinate people in early education and care. It's amazing, yes. Judas, I think Judith Stone still has that view. She's uh, <laughs> Oh, no, I said I'd never mention her again. Sorry, I broke my own rule anyway. Um, but that basically... Isn't it... Isn't it um, it's so sad to think that that policy could have gone through yeah. and that it was really just stopped by that ideology, you know, thinking that, that people would become Soviets... <laughs> in the US yeah, as a this, result of yeah. childcare policy. And is this really, and again, a lot of the themes of this topic I think are going to be the difficulty for people who aren't American or didn't grow up in America to understand, but there's this real sort of innate, inherent fear, um, I think even among some sort of lefty Americans that of, of government involvement in people's lives. Um, so this idea that the government would fund and then potentially force children to access institutional childcare where they would be taught all manner of lefty nonsense is 
you know, I, I mock it, but it's a, it's it's an actual fear people have, and that so that was in 1972. That was well, vetoed. you just had to like you just have to see what happened with Obamacare to see the comparison. Mm. Instead of going, yeah, you know, like Australians would, oh wow, you know, free medical care, great, let's take it on. They instead go, you know, no, this is absolute intrusion into individuals' private decision-making about their health. And you go, yeah. what? Yeah. And what, wasn't that, that was so hard to understand, wasn't it? Because it, here we are with, with a, a reasonable system, a reasonable healthcare system, and it just didn't make any sense. Yeah. And it's interesting, actually, in Australia was used a lot in those debates because Americans, and I think mainly due to Crocodile Dundee in those kind of movies, I think the Americans that have this view as Australia as almost what America used to be, it's a sort of frontier, very individualistic, um, and it was always sort of, it's often held up, but the two things, so Americans, and I, I remember seeing a lot of articles and watching videos of um, people, actually it was specifically when Julia Gillard was the Prime Minister, and so they they would interview Americans and say, "Oh, that's right. Well, we've got a we've got the female prime minister, universal health care, and um, the most insane gun laws on the planet, which always sort of uh, rocked Americans back on their heels." I think when that so I think half of them now are worried we're some sort of lefty socialist utopia. But so that was in 1972. That sort of bipartisan that last that sort of golden opportunity for um the universal early childhood to be rolled out was uh was knocked on the head and it hasn't really gone anywhere since then there's been minor sort of increments in terms of um what they call the head start program which is specifically targeting uh children at risk of vulnerability or disadvantage but there's been no significant push to improve what is a really now patchy and actually pretty hideous and horrible system of um american early childhood education oh I think there has been significant pushes. Whether or not they've been successful is another Yeah, well, significant issue. successful, but, yeah, there hasn't been a lot that's actually yeah. changed in the policy since then. Yeah, one of the things that most strikes me about America um, and childcare is how different it is state by state, like each state has their own systems, um, some with federal money, some without federal money some with a lot of state money behind it, some without. So like in New York, as we were speaking about a few weeks ago, you know, children have a right to universal preschool, whereas in other states it doesn't have a, happen at all. In some states it's high, a highly regulated area, but in a lot of states there's almost no regulations whatsoever. In lots of areas of new of America, childcare is basically what we would call a legal backyard care. In um, other states, it's full of you know ritzy private um, uh, academies for young people. You know, so there's a lot of disparity between what you get. And it's insanely expensive. So we're sort of having the affordability and access argument in Australia. It is definitely way too expensive, but it's um it's even worse in the US because wages are low anyway. For yeah, educators can be getting nine dollars an hour. Yeah, so oh, the pay is so low. It's so incredibly low. Yeah, even even lower than here. Yeah, even yes, hard to believe, but yes, we've uh, there it, it is it is much lower. But, um, but yeah, but there's still a lot of um, there's quite a lot of alignment between our the way our our system has developed and the way that that it has developed in the states as well, and it's and it suffers the same kind of patchiness around 
what the intentions are and the reason for childcare, whether it's for education or whether it's for for women working. But once you start to look at it in more depth, it makes Australia's policy look like the most cohesive, <laughs> consistent policy. And that's scary. That's, and that is very frightening because it really it it just looks so simple in comparison. But it's you know around the number of states that there are and the different as, as you're saying Lisa the different regs and the different um, adherence to those regs and mm. and there's just such a wide disparity of care yeah and I remember Lisa you and I particularly a few years back when there was a lot of discovery and uh, either after the um, coalition government had been elected or just before when there was a lot of sort of debate and advocacy around early childhood and this idea of, you know, there's too much red tape, there's too much red tape in early childhood, there's too much regulation. And we used to point to America to say, this is the stuff that can happen. There's some hideous stories that come out about um, the the quality of um, uh, provision of early childhood. And there's a article which we'll link to in the show notes, which sort of looks at um, a, a particular centre in Texas, which is, just has some of the worst stuff you could imagine. But what it then talks about is the, the system of regulation is so broken. So, A, there's not enough people... Because you know Americans want the leanest possible. Well, they want no government, but they the lean if it's going to be there. They want next to no one working in there. So the ability to do um, you know their version of assessment and rating or accreditation is non-existent. But they're also which just it, it sort of blows my mind. They would say they would they would identify really poor centres, centres where you know their children were at risk, and they couldn't shut them down because families had no other option, and they would you know mount campaigns to keep the centre open. So even if they could identify these appalling centres, they would often just stay open because there are no other options for the families in these communities. It, it is, and it is an example of where we always need to be fighting back against that that really stupid reductive argument that red tape is bad because it keeps children safe. Yeah, and to a degree that the reluctance to act on on shutting down services that haven't met standards or accreditation in the past has been that's that's been a a very um, reluctant act of government. So the same thing does happen. Well, has happened in the past here, but it's just the volume. I guess, that you're talking about in the States and also the sort of stuff that can happen, that article that you'll have a look at, that is just horrendous. And it seems that perhaps that couldn't happen here. Do we think that? I don't think that any centre that is as bad as some of the ones that do exist in America would be able to happen here. I think that um, there's enough... Uh, even though we have childcare shortages, there's enough, you know, people, there's enough alternate centres that parents mm. would walk from a centre as bad as that. In Minnesota, in one year, in 2012, nine children died mm. in in that one state. So one tiny state, nine children died in childcare. In Australia that year, there was no children that died of childcare. Oh. That's across all of Australia, you know. And, like, you know, the stories that I hear coming out of places like Minnesota are just appalling, you know. Like, the sorts of um, things that that we worry about 
in terms of safety just wouldn't even enter their heads. What do yeah. you mean wearing gloves to stop infection? What do you mean, <laughs> you know, cleaning off a nappy pad? <laughs> like those kind of basic things just wouldn't even be heard of. It's more like, ah, oh, you reckon it's probably not good if one educator's looking after 22 children. Or if an oh. educator goes out to um, to do the shopping while <laughs> the children are in the family daycare service. or Yeah. There's okay. terrible undersupply, isn't there? There's just not enough supply. Yeah. yeah. And when you look at the numbers of undersupply, it's not – it's broad across the whole of the states rather than being sort of a bit more localised here. Yeah. But um, as with most, thing, most things to do with the United States, it is incredibly complex and makes your head twist in all directions because that is the kind of state of play in the US, um, that it is very patchy state by state. The level of quality is significantly less and the, and the, the chances of you know, government stepping in and addressing it are, are challenging to say the least. But some of the best advocacy and research in the early childhood sphere comes from the US. It's a very... Including from Hillary Clinton. Including from Hillary Clinton. So one of her many qualifications to be president of the United States, as opposed to the uh, her, her opponent, is um, her work in what's called Too Small to Fail, which is an advocacy campaign targeted at um, a range of things, but specifically things like um, literacy and numeracy in young children and basically setting up um, children to succeed later on. And it's a bit of a play on that idea in the, the, the global financial crisis that there were banks and institutions that were too big to fail. So they became so swollen and huge that they, they couldn't fall over without damaging the whole um, uh, economy. And um, But what sort of came after this was this um, great idea of calling it too small to fail, which is about saying this is you know an investment and stuff we have to get right for young children. But um, that's one of a range of a, a, um, a whole... Uh, bunch of organisations that are really pushing this um, uh, nationally within the US, but also internationally, the importance of early childhood. And, you know, off the top of my head, you know, there's things like the Heckman Institute, um, the uh, NAEYC, so the um, National Organisation for the Advancement of Early Years um, uh, curriculum, I think I'll have to make sure I've got the right acronym for that. But it's really, and, and you know, the research that comes out of the US, so there's Heckman's research, there's the Abbasidarian um, approach, there's a whole bunch of research from those Head Start programs that have gone back for decades. It's it's really crazy that you can have, you know, probably one of the worst systems, at least in the developed world, but then there's so much incredible advocacy and research coming out from from them as but well. There's a, there's a different attitude to philanthropy to Liam, and so a lot of these things are privately funded, and, yeah. and the money's actually dedicated to, um, you know, building these sorts of institutions and and programs. And we don't have that level of, of private commitment here to this sort of stuff. Well, it's kind of been that's, that, because we haven't really had to, to, to talk really generally, but in the US you kind of have had to because there just is this complete inertia from government on getting involved in any of these issues so it kind of has to come from philanthropy and which is you know a real catch-22 because it means that then there's an you can make the argument that doesn't need to be government funding look we have all these philanthropy but also positions it as non-essential so 
it's not because the government's not involved, which is always one of the, the key arguments for ensuring that the government funds things like the National Partnership Agreement and it's not just devolved to states, is it positions it as a vital uh, funding requirement nationally. But in the US, you're absolutely right. There's, it's incredibly hard to get anything funded by the government, let alone um, things to do with young children, uh, which just sort of entrenches this view that, well, it's not necessary or it's just a luxury that, you know, if there's, you know, uh, private money out there to do it, we'll just do it through that. Yeah, and I, th I think when, when you look at the sorts of things that are funded, it's different to funding, for example, every child attending or having access to a preschool um, program. It's more around, it, it looks at small, it seems, sounds small, but it's not small, uh, about building um, literacy for young children. It's quite focused, the, the way that the philanthropy works. And I think maybe it's trying to make you know, a difference to sort of every child, person by person in a way. That's kind of the way that I look at it. Yeah. In talking about regulation, there is also voluntary accreditation in the States. So that's the difference between our accreditation systems that we have is that ours is not voluntary and it is linked to um, the to CCB. And so it is it is compulsory if you want to access CCB and it's the first system in the world that was ever developed that that was linked directly to government subsidies. But the NAYC, which is the National Association of Early Years, hold on, I'm going to tell you what it is, Liam. <laughs> Please, <laughs> count, count, I'm going to go council actually, not curriculum. Uh, children. Oh. Yeah, that's that's not. That's not it either, and you're going to have to edit all of this out. <laughs> no, I'm leaving because this in. This is how the sausage here. is made, okay, people. Here we go. Here we go. The uh, NAYC is the National Association for the Education of Young Children, and people should go there and have a look because it has the most amazing structure and publications and policy, you name it. But it is it is really a voluntary system in the States, the system of, of accreditation. But when you look at the numbers of services that are accredited, which meet these standards, it's so low. It's so low across the states. The highest is in Hawaii, where 37% of services are have undertaken voluntary accreditation and meet the standards. But the number of services in that state is very low. But you've got places like Montana that have got 3% of services that meet those accreditation standards. So it really demonstrates that it is such a low um, adherence to those guidelines of voluntary accreditation. And I think that's quite scary in itself. Um, and we're very fortunate to have a system here that is compulsory, even though some people don't love it. Uh, NAEYC was the four, put the put the, the original accreditation system here into place as a forerunner to our current system. And that was how it all started. But Really, we've embraced it so much more and have have embedded it. So I think that is actually a real highlight of Australia. Probably another example Good. of something the US has developed in this space that is being used far better uh, overseas than in their own country. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both. We'll uh, take a quick break and then come back with our second topic for this episode. Mm -hmm. 
All right, we're going to move on to topic two now. We're going to look at the push to extend the current uh, four-year-old funded preschool across Australia to three-year-olds. This has um, probably been on, our, well, probably collectively on our radar for quite a while, but in terms of the podcast, um, this was brought up by Kate Ellis in her National Press Club address, National Press Club address a couple of weeks back. We've since had a report from the Mitchell Institute, which has been doing some really fantastic um, uh, analysis of data and research and, and advocacy in this space, um, and have basically been making the case for uh, that we should be extending access to early uh, to high quality preschool um, to three year olds. So. I guess we should start with... Um... Hang on, you've forgotten one other person. Simon Birmingham tells us oh. he's been pushing for it for all of the last year. I know, I must have missed that, Lisa, and I don't know if, did you, if he hasn't seen just hasn't pointed to a specific <laughs> speech or, or interview or I missed that as well. <laughs> I think he may have mentioned it once or twice, but I think it was you know, definitely without any understanding that maybe he was the one responsible for organising <laughs> funding could, If for you it. actually thought that way, he could do something about it. Yeah. I think so. advisors saying, shh, 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 don't say anymore. I think they sometimes forget they're in government, this government, but anyway. Um, so I guess, um, I don't know who I'm going to drop into at this time. Maybe you, Leanne, did you want to, I mean, without going into the whole report, we'll obviously link to the report specifically, but, you know, someone who's, who's been in this space for a while, what's the sort of, uh, the, the evidence or the argument for why this is really important? Uh, well, I think it's always the same argument that two years is better than one. And that argument has been around for a long time. Sometimes I think we're just re, um, what is it, regurgitating the argument over and over again. But it's great to see this piece of research come out and it's talking about sustained interactions. It's all about relationships. It's all about play-based learning. It's all about um, having better language development. And, you know, we, we don't always love things being linked to testing in the years up ahead. Um, we don't we don't always love saying, well, it's going to have improvements in NAPLAN results and it's going to have improvements in, in whatever leaving exams people have. But it does it does have that and it makes a difference, particularly for children who are from disadvantaged backgrounds. So I think it is putting the same arguments, you know, forward, which we have been hearing for a long time, but it's great to see those represented and, um, and the, the research behind that. Yeah, I, I, I'm thrilled that the report from the Mitchell Institute has come out because it does so clearly summarise all of that stuff that we have been saying for ages. So it basically says that, you know, there'll be improved academic results um, for children. And I acknowledge what you say, Leanne, that maybe that's not the be-all and end-all, but, you know, it, it does talk about the improved academic results. It says that... It'll, um, that we need to do it because according to the results of the um, of the early AEDC, what's it called now? The Australian AEDC. Early Development yep. Census. I've got the right word. Um, uh, that one in four children are just not ready for school when they start. And also the evidence that um, wealthier children are accessing a preschool education, whereas um, uh, children from less uh, privileged socioeconomic areas are 
accessing early education, but maybe not uh, having that led by a qualified early childhood teacher. So the the real three pieces of um, research that um, they've assessed and looked at is the EPI project or EPSI as it's called now, which um, uh, was a a long-term, longitudinal study of two and a half thousand um, children in England. And um, it showed that children who attended between two and three years of early education got higher overall schools in their end of school exams, better grades in everything. And they took more, um, uh, what's it called, O-levels, E-levels, O-levels? A-levels, I think it is. A-levels, when they finished their um, school than those who hadn't attended preschool. It also looks at the PISA results and shows that children with at least two years of preschool education achieved much higher scores and that... um, and another one called the Abbott Pre-K Program in New Jersey, no relation to our Mr Abbott, um, which um, shows that where children have had two years of high-quality preschool programs, um, then the children that attended from age three did better on a whole range of scores than children that only attended from year, um, age four. It's, so evidence, yeah. there's a bucket of it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I feel yeah. like I, I'm, I'm the last person in the world to be called optimistic on almost anything to do with early childhood. But it does kind of feel like the stars, are, if not aligning, are shifting a bit closer together on this. So we sort of had Kate Ellis's address, which was a great sort of commitment from, uh, well, at least from Kate Ellis, whether it's, you know, from, from we can take that as read, given she's a shadow minister for Labor. Um, Birmingham is somehow claiming he's been supporting this the whole time, which I still find hilarious. And the mounting sort of international, uh, you know, case studies and the, you know, where this is happening overseas, it feels like, you know, four or five years ago, I would I, I would have thought, God, we still probably need to make sure the four-year-old stuff's embedded. We probably actually do need to make sure that's embedded at a systemic level. But I don't know. It feels like this is something that is now is not out of the realm of possibility, even within the next, I don't know, five years oh, or something. Well, I'm going to be a pessimist <laughs> there. I, I have to say I am too because I feel like it's the same, you know, even when this article came out, I thought, oh, is that a new article? today is that a new piece of research but i think as advocates we've been talking about it for a while but i feel like the the conversation shifted in um those sort of positions of authority i don't think we would have had we you know labor has never made that case for the opposition you know has never made that case for three-year-old preschool and birmingham didn't immediately come and shoot it down he actually sort of wanted to make sure i don't know he feels like he even wants to get himself on the right side for a sort of movement it seems i think you're rightly and i was going to say you know if i it definitely feels like we've been having the the discussion about the evidence and the research over and over and over again but i know it just seems like the response has shifted something in the last year or so yeah yeah well that's true and i i can find um that uh, Simon Birmingham was talking about three-year-old preschool in on November the thirteenth, twenty fifteen, and that's the that's the earliest time that I can see that. It and was, what did he say about it? That it would be extended to all three-year-olds under an ambitious plan to boost the nation's educational performance. And when was the election in relation to that date? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether three-year-old preschool is a huge election issue to a great proportion of the 
the population. And, you know, I no. think that three-year-old preschool has been spoken about quite a bit in the past, but never with a commitment from um, government to fund it. Look, can I just, you know, I am normally right on top of things like the national partnerships, etc., because that's the sort of nerd that I am. <laughs> but I must admit to falling behind with the latest one because I just got all a bit bored with it. But I opened up today in my homework time the National Partnership Agreement on Universal Access to Early Childhood Education 2016 and 2017. Now, this was signed, I'm just looking, um, it was signed by Malcolm Turnbull on the 21st of February 2016, right? The only, um, uh, the only premier that um, has signed it on the website is actually, um, uh, oh, no, there's a, there's a few of them have signed it there. Okay. So, yeah, um, so it's the latest, um, you know, thing about universal access for four-year-olds in Australia. And it's very complex. No wonder, you know, governments are saying they can't work out when they get funding and what funding they're getting because I've never seen a, a national partnership as complicated as this one. But what struck me um, as more amazing is that they're saying that the base rate is that 95% of children should, uh, uh, unless I'm really misinterpreting this, they're saying that the base rate is that 95% of children are having access to four-year-old um, uh to four-year-old preschool. 95% of four-year-olds are having access to yep. early childhood. Yeah, 15 hours of early education. Now, that just seems to me absolutely like madness. I don't know. And like that figure is used in the Mitchell report too. Like um, the author says, yeah, because we've got 95% of people, of children actually accessing four-year-old, um, 15 hours of four-year-old preschool you know we should be able to extend from there and I'm just going really we've got 95% of children accessing it I just don't think that's true and I know I come from a state that's very biased but I saw those figures just creep up year by year by year in um, universal access reports without anything much changing on the ground in New South Wales I, I, I just wonder don't whether think the, those yeah. figures well, how how sound is the data? That's the because the the data obviously now is taking into account long daycare attendance with early childhood teachers in in um, services now across Australia as they were more they were focused in only a few states. But the, I don't know that the data is probably able to unpack the number of children that might be attending more than one service, um, and that that are really attending for the 15 hours a week or having access to an early childhood teacher for 15 hours a week. So it's, it's yeah. I just don't think it's possible for the data to tell and that look, it's actually they, 95%. Yeah, the data, you know, like even in the National Partnership, they say that the data's, you know, like um, not as good as it should be. And I know in the report, um, the author of the Mitchell Report 
like tackled the data from about five different data sources rather than just taking one. But I just find I find those figures really hard to believe. When you, if if anyone wants to have a look, the um, Universal um, Access National Partnership is online, as is now each state's um, bilateral agreement as to what they're going to do. The New South Wales one uh, just leaves me totally puzzled, so I'll need longer to actually have mm-hmm. a look at it. But it is worthwhile having a look and seeing what's happening in your state and mm. you know what they say is going to happen. And I think, but you're um, right to. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, Liam, it is a very complex agreement. This one, much more complex than the former agreement. Well, yeah. it is, and it's it's there's this insanity in Australia of 23 million people that we insist on having separate ways of doing this across different states. That it, it it's insanity, but it's in. But Lisa, it's we, we, even, sorry, it's not even just across different states. The the. Like, I think the biggest barrier to three-year-old preschool is that they still see they, being the federal government, being a lot of the states, still see preschool as being different to childcare. Yeah, there's not there's not a um, universal uh, understanding of that at all, of that, it, the term, what the term actually means. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, someone should do a podcast on the importance of language in early childhood. Well, that's important. Yeah, um, yeah. I was going to say, I think we might, might give ourselves some homework maybe for next week's uh, episode on the data on that because you're right, it is insanely complicated and the way it's tracked in different states is different. But um, the overall point, I think, which is made is that the partnership agreement has uh, drastically improved access in that space and this, the, the most particular case study is Queensland where I think they were late to sign on to the NPA and were, but then they had one of the lowest rates of access for um, the 15 hours uh, in the year before school. I, I think it was at something as dire as 20 to 25 percent when they signed up for the NPA and the government and the Queensland government funded it it shot up to um, to 90 over the course of about four or five years. So I think the important thing to remember is because we, Australia is always, until there's a significant reform of how early childhood is looked at, you know, across the across the board, there are always going to be significant issues with how this is implemented. But the overall thing to keep in mind is that having an agreement and having it federally funded means that it's a very good foundation for getting this done. And I think one of the points Kate Ellis was making in her address is that the system's in place for four-year-old. Yes, we can argue about whether it's working as well as it can be, but there's a system there we can then extend on to make sure that you know that, that there is a possibility it could be done for three-year-olds there's, as well. Yeah, and there is that foundation there, but it does take each state to contribute <laughs> money to it as well. And in states where it is close to free, it's because the state has contributed money and therefore... It's much, you know, it's much better take-up rate. Where, where early childhood education is close to free or free, people come. Yeah. People bring their children. It, it is as simple as that. And we used to have subsidised three-year-old attendance in New South Wales. Precisely. <laughs> Can I just remind people, like, you know, I know that New South Wales is a very bizarre little anomaly on the face of this, but until universal access for four-year-olds became a thing in Australia until there was a national partnership, 
every three-year-old and four-year-old could access early education and, you know, a preschool education, a funded preschool education, albeit badly funded, in New South Wales. It was only in an attempt to meet the criteria to get the funding off the feds that New South Wales actually chucked out the three-year-olds out of early yeah, education. And there, was, and there was no convincing the um, state that they were forward-thinking in having this three-year-old <laughs> access. It was, it, you know, as Lisa said, it just, it just went. And, I mean, I think that many of us who are parents of children who have gone through early childhood education in New South Wales accessed two years of preschool, and I certainly... A couple of my children did when we used preschool, two years, and one even accessed three years of subsidised preschool. <gasps> Double dipping. You're one of those rorting mothers that they've been going on about yeah, for the last little while. Yeah, I think we triple dipped. And, um, you know, and tell, I, me, I, yeah, tell me, Leanne, have any of those children actually managed to succeed educationally? I think they've done okay. I think yeah. they've done okay. But I do, are, I mean... Are I, we just, I, sorry, I just need to clarify here. Are we talking to a mother who's just got her third child through the HSC? It's a proud moment <laughs> in the family. But I, I do, I mean, obviously it was a valuing of early childhood education in our house. Hopefully that would be the case. Um, but, you know, it, it was, I have reflected on those early years and their access to early childhood education. I'm very grateful for the subsidised education that they had. Um, but it really did establish and provide them with a strong foundation, which everybody who is listening to this will know anyway. <laughs> but at, at that personal level, you know, to to look at the advantages and the and if you're feeling nostalgic about anything when children get to this stage, it's about their preschool years. <laughs> so you're telling me New South Wales has made some ridiculous, insane decisions about early childhood education. So what we're actually saying is New South Wales is the United States of Australia. <laughs> yes, is that fair? it is. <laughs> yep. And sometimes right. one can even see a bit of Donald Trump in Mike Baird. Oh, God. No, there, there is actually a difference because I having seen and experienced um, and, you know, been through so many services in New South Wales, they are very high quality <laughs> and uh, have, yeah, there's some incredible services throughout New South Wales. I just want to put, it, put out yes. there, you know, where we're talking about some of those really um, disastrous things that happen in US centres. Yep. New South Wales is not No, New South Wales anymore. has got... a huge amount of those lefty communist Stalinist teachers indoctrinating the next generation, so they're doing fine. Um, so and I guess... we've, we've also got more teachers. We need yeah. to say that. That's yeah. who I'm talking about, Lisa. It's legislated that we have early childhood you know, degree qualified teachers in every service above 30 for years and years and years, and we managed to retain that during the national quality framework. So. Yeah, exactly. we, we have, and we've had that for, for over 30 years. I know we're getting a bit New South Wales-centric here, Liam, but um, we've had that for over 30 years, and even services that were under that many places often uh, did that voluntarily as well. Yeah, that's right. Well, I might be in the market for a couple of co-hosts from a less insane state in the next little while, so if you <laughs> get in, get in touch. But um, I guess as, uh, as you know, a group of advocates um, sitting... Uh, uh, 
through the magic of the internet around the table discussing this and talking to hopefully some fantastic early childhood advocates listening to this uh, episode. Um, what are the things we need to be doing as advocates to try and push this um, agenda forward? If, um, as I hope, there is a bit of a moment approaching, or if even um, I'm, I'm not right and we're still a long way off, you know, what are, what as advocates do we need to be to be doing? What do you think, Leanne? Uh, I think that um, sharing this research that has come out today again, um, keeping at the really just keeping at, at you know keeping up that that momentum, I suppose, on, okay, if we have got universal access for four-year-olds, depending on the data, we do really want to keep that um, pressure up to have access to early childhood education. I'd just say, keep at it, everybody. We're going to get there one day. We sure are. I, I Just to show how easy advocacy can be, I'll tell you something I did today in two minutes that I happened to have free. I just sent an email out to uh, a, a, a group of preschool um, educators that um, I talk to regularly and said, okay, here are the two links, one to the report, one to the fact sheet about the report. Can everyone please um, send it to their local MP with this one-line email? And can everyone send it to their local TV or radio station or newspaper saying that um, this is important news and that you're prepared to comment on it if they'd like to come to your service and, um, and, and film your service in connection with this story? Now that, and I then sent around a list of all electorates and within five minutes of about five, six people had said, yep, I'll do this electorate, I'll do this one, I'll do this one. So it's, sometimes advocacy doesn't need to be huge. As simple as sending a link to an MP with a report and to a media station can have a huge impact. So I think, you know, you can do really small things like that to have an impact. Yeah, that's great, Lisa. I think the only quick thing I'd add is that we essentially, if we're taking people at their word, um, we essentially have the minister in the current government responsible for early childhood education and the shadow minister of the main opposition party have both on the record said that this is something that can and should happen. So um, I know what I'll particularly be doing and encouraging others to do is basically just holding them to that. So um, we know Labor will, beginning a, will we be beginning a... Um, a tour of the of the countries that are looking at um, uh, consultation, um, and you know, Minister Birmingham is there um, to chat with at other times. So I would just be essentially saying you've both committed to it. When's it going to happen? Um, but uh, as usual, we'd love to hear from 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 everyone in terms of you know advocacy or initiatives they have uh, looking at. Um, but I think that's it for our main topics for tonight. We might now move on to. Um, just uh, the uh, regular sort of wrap-up part of the podcast. So I want to, um, uh, which, which means going to our recommendations. So uh, we might start with you, Lisa. What have you got for us this week? Okay, so what I've got is actually um, the, I, I've decided to become Leanne. Is that possible? I'm recommending something from the conversation. And what it is is a, it's a very simple article written by um, Stacy. Stacy, what's Stacy's last Fox. name? Stacy Fox. Stacy Fox. Oh, Dr. Stacy Fox, um, Fox, who's 
who's the um, the author of that three-year-old preschool report, and it's just a summary of the report in a very simple and easy-to-read way. That's my recommendation for this week. That's great. Thanks, Lisa. I'm feeling really bad about our ban on Leanne using conversation articles now because I think we've both used them probably more than she has at this point. Right. So we could consider it lifted, Leanne, I think, at this point. You're very, you're very harsh on me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what, what have you got for us this week, Leanne? Well, because I didn't want to use a conversation article because you gave me up. I'm using this very, very odd um article which is called no glory in glorified babysitting and i should i should have known that it would be a bit odd when it's libcom.org from the states but anyway it actually says that it's someone from australia daniel cole from australia who's an early childhood educator who's kind of putting forward the case about there is no glory in glorified babysitting but i think they've americanized the article so it does read in a very strange manner because it talks about particular um, programs in the states as opposed to Australia and even talks about a program in Washington so anyway I just think it's it's interesting to have a read of it um, because some of the it, some of the position that he, that he's putting forward is that really there's too much emphasis on standards and excellence and professionalism in the field. And he says that this comes from a mix of academic researchers, non-profit swivel heads, I don't know what that is, <laughs> and government bureaucrats. But it, I think it's interesting in light of what we've been talking about, regulation and the US, and he questions whether any of those people have ever spent any time face-to-face in the early childhood environment. So it does raise some good points, but I think there's some that are quite off the mark. And I'd be interested to know whether Daniel Cole is actually an Australian educator or someone from the States? Because I'm very confused and I'll leave it to readers to decide. I actually stalked him on Facebook. <laughs> oh, did you? Um, what did you yeah. find? <laughs> well, it, uh, I think he might be a made-up human being. But, um, yeah, because he's got, if you Google his name, it comes up with a Facebook post where he says he's a childcare worker. And, like, I can, uh, he's got... Um, quite tight privacy settings, but I don't think he's Australian. And I okay. kind of have wondered whether he's you're exists. out there, come, come forward. <laughs> we're, we're, we're offering you an interview. That'd be great. Um, I'll just wrap up with um, just the announcement today as we record this that um, the ACT government, which recently was uh, re-elected, uh, Labor Greens Coalition have announced their uh, ministerial positions um, and uh, there's a uh, particular, well, there's actually probably a couple of things. One of them is the election of uh, Chris Steele, who used to be a policy advisor for ECA. Yay! Yay! And has had a significant background working in early childhood, was confirmed uh, as being elected to the Legislative Assembly. So congrats to Chris. But probably more excitingly is the elevation of Yvette Barry to Deputy uh, Chief Minister and Minister for uh, Education and Early Childhood Development. So a couple of fantastic uh, sort of achievements there. One, um, Yvette, uh, so the, the sort of formal acknowledgement on the ACT that uh, of the importance of early childhood in the ministerial title, which is, it can seem like a small thing, but actually is pretty important from my point of view because it's that language discussion again. So it means that, you know, that, that we're always going to be hearing about early childhood development. Um, but then Yvette's, uh, particularly in her Deputy Chief Minister role, Yvette has a really strong background in early childhood education. I can remember Yvette, 
uh, from got about a decade ago or more in her role at United Voice as an, an organizer and then uh, um, uh, one of the senior leaders in that uh, um, that union in terms of early childhood education. She's she's worked alongside educators for a long period of time. This is a really significant. Um, appointment for the ACT. So big congratulations to Yvette and um, this can only I think mean good things for early childhood education in the ACT so I'm a bit excited. Um, but we'll right. include, yeah, which is, yeah, go Yvette. So we'll include links to uh, all those recommendations in the show notes. Um, I want to do the uh, traditional weekly begging for a review or a rating on iTunes. As I, as I say each week, it really does help everyone find the podcast. And we've had two great reviews over the last week, so I just want to quickly call them out. Now they both yay! have yay, and we, we're really grateful for them. They both do have slightly complicated names, which I am inevitably going to mispronounce. So please let me know if I have done so. So I want to thank uh, Kemi Intia. Um, who somewhat, somewhat, somewhat hilariously and worryingly says that the passengers in her car are also forced to listen to this podcast. So if you're listening oh, to this no. now, my, my sincere apologies. We hope you're enjoying it. And, um, you know, at least you're, you're learning something about early childhood education, which is fantastic. But um, yeah, she makes the great point. Um, about how policy is closely related to pedagogy, which is absolutely true and probably something took me about 10 years to work out. So you're doing a fantastic work in that space. And then the other quick review is from uh, K8L um, and uh, says we, we're good at talking about the hard stuff and calling it as it is, like Donald Trump, I guess. Is that, <laughs> yeah, probably. We don't want to make that connection too hard. But um, I would like to really thank K8L and uh, Kemi Entia for their reviews. Like I said, it does, um, doesn't just make us feel warm and happy, although it certainly does. It um, just really helps the podcast uh, appear in more people's um, uh, podcast app particularly means that more people can find and listen and share the podcast so thank you very much for doing that uh, we will uh, be back obviously uh, next week with some more discussions in early childhood policy and politics if you want to get in touch with us uh, in the meantime please feel free to find us on our facebook page which is facebook.com forward slash early edu show it's early edu show you can also find us on the same handle on Twitter, which is probably where most of us hang out. So if you wanted to have a chance, it's probably the best place to hit us up, but that's twitter.com forward slash early edu show. Uh, you can also track us down individually, and I am on Twitter at Liam McNicholas. And I'm Lisa J. Bryant. And I'm Leanne in Gibbs 3. And we hope you've enjoyed this week's episode, and we'll be back next week. So until then, it's goodbye from me. And from me. And from me. Oh, I think Lisa's dropped out. Oh, she's gone. Oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, oh there she is. she's back. She's back again. Hello. 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 Was there something Hello. I said? Hello.